Again, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Tommy Mitchell from Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, to share with us this morning. Uh, my wife and I got to meet him a few years ago at a, uh, I forget what they call it, like a pastor's day out there. We got to have lunch with him and really appreciated his heart for the ministry and his uh, passion for the truth. So without any further ado, I'd like to invite him to come forward, and I'd like to have a short prayer with him, and then we'll turn the time over to him. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord. I praise you for this opportunity. I praise you for bringing Tommy Mitchell to share with us this morning. I just pray for your anointing upon him this morning as he brings us your truth and brings us your word and just give us open hearts to receive your truth, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Frankly, it's my pleasure to be anywhere where I don't have to apologize for my accent. Yeah, go ahead and laugh. Three years ago, Answers in Genesis sent me to Rochester, New York with this accent. Those Yankees thought Gomer Pyle had come to town. I could have told them evolution was good. They would have been happy. They just, you know, did you say reckon and ain't and y'all? Yeah, I reckon I did. So occasionally I will use a word that you may not understand. And if you don't understand it, raise your hand and I will do my best to translate it into normal English if there is an equivalent. Uh, how many people have been to the Creation Museum? Excellent. Okay, you can sit over here and get away from all these sinners who haven't been. I drove up here. It's only like three and a half hours. It's a nice drive. It's pleasant. You need to go to the Creation Museum. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this before you answer. Should a Christian in our modern age, in our scientific society, should a Christian in this day and age actually care about the book of Genesis? Yeah, you can think about it, but then you can answer. Okay, yeah, think about it, then answer. This is really easy. Of course, I think so. I work with a ministry called Answers in Genesis. We think it's very important. It's foundational. And if we're going to talk about the book of Genesis this morning, the, the most obvious place to start would be First Chronicle. And the, you can laugh if you want to. I mean, I'm having a good time. If you're not, it's on you. And the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times. I submit in this day and age, the church no longer has understanding of the time. Now, when I say church, I don't mean this church specifically. I mean church in the global sense. I praise God for churches like this that boldly and unashamedly stand on the authority of the Word of God. But I'm going to tell you this directly. You're in the minority. The vast majority of churches take man's ideas and use them to reinterpret the Word of God. We've got to take man's ideas to help us understand what God told us. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here's a barn has a crack in its foundation. What's going to happen to this barn? It's going to fall down, right? You know, the same can be said of Christianity. Every major doctrine in Christianity, directly or indirectly, finds its way back where? Look at Genesis. You want to understand sin? Where do you have to start? My slides are labeled, folks. Work with me here, okay? If I ask a question, either answer yes or Genesis, you got 95% of them, okay? I'll do carbon-14 and all the genetic stuff. I'm going to give you the easy ones. You have to start in Genesis. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What are you talking about? Jesus died for our sins. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. No, 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 we're all sinners in need of a Savior. I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. No, no, no. We're all sinners. Don't you understand? 
Don't you get it? I'm a good person. You ever had that kind of conversation with people? I go round and round with people about that. You know what the problem is? People out in the world think they're good. Charles Darwin wrote about that. He says as evolution progresses, man's going to reach closer and closer to what he calls perfection. And there is a source of authority in the world to convince people they're good. You know what that source of authority is? eBay. Anybody here ever shopped on eBay? Well, I bought some priceless junk. I mean treasures on eBay. You go to eBay's policy page and it says this. We believe people are basically good. Now, I don't know who else is shopping on eBay, but the people I know that shop on eBay are wretched sinners in need of a Savior. Particularly the one I see in a mirror every day. But see, if people think they're good, how do you convince them they're sinners in need of a Savior? You have to go back where? To Genesis. Let me show you how this works. God created everything in how long? Six days. Ordinary 24-hour days. Looked at his creation and said it was what? When God says something's very good, how good is it? It's very, see, these are, you get the easy ones, I'll take the hard ones. It's very good. In this perfect, very good paradise, what did God give man and the animals to eat? Plants. Genesis 1, 29 and 30. And God said, Behold, I've given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. You it shall be for me. And every beast of the earth, and every fowl of the air, and everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I've given every green herb for me. In the beginning, man and the animals were vegetarian. What did that mean? It meant Adam and Eve didn't have a barbecue. T-Rex didn't try to eat Adam and Eve. The lion didn't eat the lamb. Plants only. In the beginning, people didn't kill animals for food. Animals didn't rip each other up for food. In the beginning, we were vegetarian. Having said that, do I promote a vegetarian lifestyle? No, thank you. I do not. Would you like proof? Yeah, you got the wide-angle thing. Any meal that does not involve ketchup and or A1 sauce, I mean, what's the point? Okay? Do not bring me a plate of grass and call it food. Salad means food is coming shortly. <laughs> you know, it's like a promissory note. If you eat this, I promise I'll give you food. I would make a lousy vegetarian. Having said that, I'm going to show you the single most important verse in all the Bible. This is my life verse, Genesis 9-3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb I've given you all things. I thank God for Genesis 9-3. Without Genesis 9-3, I starve completely to death. But see, it's not till after the flood we're given the biblical okay to eat meat. In the beginning, plants only. Very important to understand that. Now, in this perfect, very good paradise, is God still in control? Is he still in authority? Sure. If he's in authority, are there rules? Sure. You know, be fruitful and multiply. There were things that were supposed to do, but there was a don't. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt what? How serious is our sin in the face of a holy, righteous God? It makes us worthy of what? Death. Here's the worst day in human history. This is where God's perfect paradise is broken. Who broke it? We did. 
They were the perfect representatives of humankind. They made the same choice we would have made. God, we don't like your rule. We don't like your authority. We want to live the way we want to live. You know what God said? Fine. But there's a consequence to that decision. Death is here. This perfect creation is now broken. Now Adam and Eve have a problem. In that sinful state, can they have fellowship with a holy, righteous God? Nope. Is there anything of their own hands they can do to restore that fellowship? Nope. Did they try? Was this adequate? It's a trick question. The answer to this is no. Was this comfortable? Was this poison ivy? I say no because at this point nobody's given me a reason there would have been poison ivy in the garden. But nonetheless, we know this was not adequate. What had to happen? Hebrews 9 and 22, almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. What had to happen? Sacrifice. Unto Adam also and his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. How did you get coats of skin? You have to have a dead animal or a very cooperative animal. There is no third choice. Adam and Eve clothed with coats of skin, the first animal sacrifice. Why are we sinners in need of a Savior? You have to go back where? Go back to Genesis. Here's a question. What is marriage? Anybody? How about this? One man, one woman for life. Would you accept that? Is that my idea? Whose idea is that? God, where do you read about that? But see, you can't use Genesis. That's what most churches will tell you. Most churches will tell you that Genesis is myth, fable, fairy tale. Most churches will tell you this. We now know enough to know what God meant as opposed to what he plainly said. Folks, that's the definition of arrogance. God, I know what you directly wrote in your word, but I now know enough to know what you meant. We can reinterpret Genesis, we can reinterpret marriage, which is exactly what our culture is doing as we speak. Why do we wear clothes? I'm a doctor, I know why people need to wear clothes. I get it. Why do we wear clothes? Clothes are the covering for sin. What about the seven-day week? What about the effects of the curse? Here's one, 1 Corinthians 15.45. Who's the last Adam? Jesus, there's a last of something, doesn't make sense, there's a first of something, you read about the first Adam, where? These are not trick questions, folks, work with me here, okay? Genesis, Romans 5, 12, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Is that a true statement? You bet it is, my home church, we call that good preaching. My pastor get a hold of that verse and go about four weeks on that one verse. By the time he gets done, we'd be excited. We'd be throwing babies up in the air. That's good preaching right there. But you know what this verse relates directly to? It relates directly to Genesis. That one man was Adam. You read about Adam in Genesis. So Paul, under the inspiration of God, said there was a one man who sinned to bring death. You read about that one man in Genesis. So if Genesis isn't real history, Romans 5.12 is a what? It's a lie. You see, there's a disconnect. becomes clear now the whole justification of Jesus' life and death is predicated on the existence of Adam and the forbidden fruit he and Eve ate. Without the original sin, who needs to be redeemed? Without Adam's fall into a life of constant sin terminated by death, 
What purpose is there to Christianity? None. You know the amazing thing? This was written by an atheist. You know what continually amazes me in this day and age? How come the world sees things so clearly and the church doesn't get it? Because the church no longer has understanding of the time. This is an atheist who points out plainly, if Adam and Eve aren't real, there's no original sin. If there's no original sin, what was the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross? How come the world gets it and the church doesn't? Because it's very plain. If you don't believe the days in Genesis are real days, you must believe in the millions of years. If you believe in the millions of years, you must believe in evolution. If you believe in evolution, you must believe that man evolved from ape-like creatures over the last three to five million years. And if man evolved from ape-like creatures over the last three to five million years, do you know what Adam and Eve are? They're a myth. If Adam and Eve are a myth, there's no original sin. If there's no original sin, why did Jesus go to the cross? How come the world understands it and the church doesn't get it? And let me say this before we go any further because somebody always misunderstands. This is not a salvation issue. Do not read that into what I'm saying at all. I was saved when I was 17. For the next 15 years of my life, I was what you would call a theistic evolutionist. You know, God created, used evolution. It was only later when I got into serious Bible study, I came to understand that that particular way of looking at Scripture, that particular you know, theologic worldview, if you will, was inconsistent. It didn't, stack, it didn't stack up against God's Word. It was inconsistent. It didn't fit. But guess what? I'm no more saved today than I was when I was 17. I'd like to think my understanding of Scripture is more mature, more complete. I have a more logical defense of the faith. This is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of biblical authority. Because after all, if evolution is true, what are you going to do with this verse? 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. If evolution is true, Adam and Eve are a myth. Frankly, I want to ask you a question. If evolution is true, why are we sinners in need of a Savior? So you've got to disconnect. And I'm going to show you the thing that more than any other causes people to doubt the Word of God. And I've been involved in creation ministry for going on 30 years now. And this continually amazes me, but I really think it's true. You know, the single thing that causes people to doubt the Word of God more than any other? Rocks. You see those rocks? Those rocks are obviously millions of years old. Anybody here been to the Grand Canyon? I've been to the Grand Canyon three times. And I'm just going to tell you, that's the deepest hole a boy from Tennessee ought to ever find himself in. We don't have holes like that in Tennessee. That thing's a mile deep in place. It's amazing. But you look at all those rock layers and the geologists look at those rocks just as serious and say, Tommy, you know, those rocks are millions of years old. It's obvious they're millions of years old. Tommy, those rocks are millions of years old. Your Bible's not true. Your Bible can't be true. We've actually tested some of those rocks. Those rocks are obviously millions of years old. What's obvious about those rocks? They're rocks. Don't, if you have to do that, you've overthought it, okay? If it takes more than two seconds, you've way overthought it. What's obvious about those rocks? They're rocks. What does an old rock look like? Rock. What does a young rock look like? Rock. What's the difference between an old rock? They're rocks. But what the world says is these rock layers were laid down by slow processes over hundreds of millions of years. They are, in effect, the physical geologic proof that the earth is millions of years old. And most Christians accept that. And Christian, if you accept that, you've got a problem. You know what your problem's called? It's called fossils. Because where do you find in many of those rock layers? You find fossils. 
Now, fossils are the remains of what? Dead things. To become a fossil, the first thing you've got to be is dead. The rest of it ain't too hard. I mean, you get dead, you get covered up, you become a fossil. So if the rocks are the physical record of hundreds of millions of years of Earth history, in many of these layers you'd find fossils, that would be the physical record of millions of years of what? Death. Oh, Adam is such a perfect world. Yes, Eve, it's very good like God said. Is that what God's Word tells us? Yeah. Is this what God's Word means? You've got to make yourself believe that after those six days, you know, God said day, but he meant millions of years. After those six days, God looked on everything he created and said it was very good including all those rocks and all those fossils. Now, you know what you find in the fossil record? You find evidence of animals that have ripped each other up, animals that have eaten each other, bone disease, arthritis, infectious disease. We find fossil evidence of brain tumors. You're going to tell me the creator God of the universe called brain tumors very good? And see, that's not even where your problem ends. Let's just say the millions of years are true, and we did evolve from ape-like creatures over the last three to five million years. And at some point, God turned to Adam and said this. Remember, the millions of years are true. God turns to Adam and says this. Adam, don't do that or you're going to die. If the millions of years are true, what would Adam's logical response be? So what? I'm going to die anyway. See, if death were already here, how could death be the punishment for man's disobedience? How could Christ's death on the cross be the atonement for our sin? You see, you've got a huge theologic disconnect. You see, that God created in six days is a perfect creation where there was no death, or if the millions of years are true, you know what's always been here? Death. If the millions of years are true, you know what's an absolute requirement? Death. You know what makes evolution go? Death. I tell you, you know who complains more about death than anybody? Evolutionists. They complain about death. Why is there death? Why is it? Well, that death, their worldview doesn't work. I mean, what's the process that makes evolution go? Survival of the fittest. And this is an easy concept. You know, strong creatures survive, weak creatures fall by the wayside. You know, for example, in Africa, who lives longer? Fast gazelles or slow ones? Fast ones. Slow ones become lunch. See, this is not hard. You know what God's Word says death is? It's an enemy. So there was a time that the church built its thinking on the Word of God. In this day and age, sadly, the church builds its thinking on man's ideas, on man's concepts. They're taught to take man's ideas and use them to reinterpret the Word of God. Which is why I praise God for churches like this. But again, churches like this are in the minority. The vast majority of churches we've surveyed will tell you evolution is absolutely true. There's no incompatibility with evolution in God's Word. And when you think about it, that sort of makes sense, I guess, because evolution is a worldview to describe or to, 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 to explain how we got here without God. It's basically a godless worldview. It's a godless philosophy. So why should we take a godless philosophy and use it to help us reinterpret the Word of God? Because after all, if you believe in evolution, you come to some really strange conclusions. Like this. The, um, this is something that, that, that I wrote a whole book about, and someone asked me yesterday why I wrote that book. Because it is the most poetic thing I know about the universe. Um, but the amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution weren't created at the beginning of time. They're created in the nuclear furnaces of stars and the only way they can get into your body is if the stars were kind enough to explode. 
So forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. Okay? And, and anyway. He's great. Yeah, forget Jesus. The stars died so you could be here. And guess what? If evolution's true, you can't say he's wrong. And you know what the saddest part of that clip is? It's not what he said about Jesus. The saddest part is the applause at the end. That man's teaching legions of young people to believe that they're just stardust, that they're just a chemical accident. And so we've got all these Christian leaders who are so compromised on this issue of grace and evolution, saying we've got to take evolution and somehow use it to help us reinterpret the Bible. Now, you know who says people like that are wrong? The evolutionists say they're wrong. And was there a particular point that, or something that you read or an experience you had that sort of said, yeah, this is it? God doesn't exist. Oh, well, by far the most important, I suppose, was understanding evolution. Um, I think the evangelical Christians have really sort of got it right in a way in seeing uh, evolution as the enemy, um, whereas the more, what should we say, sophisticated theologians who are quite happy to live with evolution, I think they're deluded. And I, think the, I think the evangelicals have got it right uh, in that there really is a deep incompatibility between evolution and Christianity, and I think I realized that at the age of about 60. This is Richard Dawkins, who I think can fairly be characterized as the world's leading spokesperson for evolution. He says all these theologians that try to take evolution and Christianity and put them together, he says they're deluded. So you've got all these Christian leaders saying we have to accommodate or have to somehow merge these two worldviews or philosophies. You've got the evolutionists saying they don't go together. How come the world understands this and the church doesn't get it? But you know who sees all this turmoil? You know who sees all this, this conflict? Our young people do. Barna statistics tell us that two-thirds of young people will walk away from the church by the time they're in their 20s. Lifeway commissioned a study. It's about eight years old now. It's up to 80%. I've talked to pastors all over the country. They tell me, Tommy, our young people are walking away in record numbers. What's the problem? Well, a couple of years ago, we published this book. It's called Already Gone. Along with Britt Beamer and uh, America's Research Group, we surveyed 1,000 young people ages 20 to 29 who don't go to church anymore but did when they were young. And there were two questions, two issues we wanted the answer to. When did you decide to walk away? And what was the reason you decided to? If you'd asked us 10 years ago when did our young people walk away from church, we would have said, you know, high school and college, when their faith's being formally and intellectually challenged. Well, high school's still an important time. But what about this? What about elementary and middle school? In our survey, by the end of middle school, 43% of those who walked away had already decided they were going to. Think of that. At that early age, the, 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 these young people thought there was a disconnect between the church and the real world, the Bible's book of myths, fables, fairy tales, and I'm not going to participate in this activity when I don't have to. Now, to be fair, at that age, they're still coming, you know, because mom and daddy are dragging them. But statistically speaking, go to any church in America, line up all the young people down front, 80% of those young people are already gone. And folks, that doesn't frighten you. It should. The number one reason our young people walk away, it's really obvious. It's kind of one of those things when you hear the answer, you go, well, I kind of knew that. But statistically, this is the answer. The reason our young people walk away, nobody answered my question. 
This is Michelle who says, I have three teenage boys and now two of them are questioning the Bible. This scares me. They tell me if the Bible is truth, then I should be able to reasonably explain the existence of dinosaurs. This is just one of many things they question. Even my husband is agreeing with them. How do I explain things to them that the Bible doesn't cover? I'm so afraid that they're walking away from God. My biggest fear is to not have my children and husband next to me in God's kingdom. Look, I know people are probably trying to lynch me when I say this, but Bishop Usher, God bless him, wasn't inspired by the Lord when he said it all took 6,000 years. <clears throat> it just didn't. And you go back in time, you've got radiocarbon dating, you've got all these things, and you've got the, 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 the carcasses of dinosaurs frozen in time out in the Dakotas, you know, they, they got Sue, that big, uh, um, what was it, you know, the, the, the fierce one. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is it Tyrannosaurus? Yeah, t Tyrannosaurus Rex, and, and uh, I don't know if they, this one had a, a female name like Susie or something, but anyhow. <laughs> They're out there. And so there was a time that these giant reptiles were on the earth, and it was before the time of the Bible. So don't try to cover it up and make like everything was 6,000 years. But that's not the Bible. That's Bishop Usher. And uh, so if you fight revealed science, you're going to lose your children. And I, I believe in telling them the way it was. Well, you can just imagine how excited we were about that particular answer. If you don't teach your kids reveal science, you're going to lose your kids. And what he says means by reveal science is he means evolution, you know, man's ideas about origins. Because after all, you need to teach your kids real science like dinosaurs lived before the time of the Bible. You know, I've got this history book, and this history book comes to me from the perfect historian, the one who's always been there who wouldn't tell me a lie in certain cases was the only one there when certain events occurred. You know when this history book begins? You know, you know when it starts? In the beginning. What existed before the time of the Bible? Nothing. I mean, God was there, but in the sense of, you know, physical, nothing. But according to Pat Robertson, dinosaurs are floating around nowhere. My history book begins in the beginning. You know what the church doesn't do anymore? The church no longer teaches apologetics. The church accepts man's ideas and uses it to reinterpret the Word of God. Because after all, you know what happens when you teach your kids revealed science? I'm going to show you. Of how I became an atheist. I was born into a Christian family and indoctrinated as, uh, growing up as a kid. That next year was freshman year of high school, and I started learning about evolution in my biology class. Then uh, that's where I realized I had never seriously questioned or thought about my religious beliefs. So as I learned about evolution and just started thinking philosophically about it, I realized that there couldn't be a God. So I became an atheist. What happened to this young man? He got taught revealed science. Do you hear what he said at first? I grew up in a Christian home and I was indoctrinated. Do you, do you hear him use that word? You know what he meant by that? You know what he was told? Bible says it, just believe it. Bible says it, just believe it. Bible says it, just believe it. Folks, the Bible says it, I believe it. When you tell a 14-year-old kid, the Bible says it, just believe it, you know what they, you know what sometimes they'll, they will return a short but pithy question. You know what their question is? Why? 
When you answer that question, you're deciding, you're teaching him, you're teaching him apologetics. When you don't answer that question, that's indoctrination. So this kid goes out and, he, and, and hears this whole new view of origins. He's taught reveal science and he walks away. Because after all, why shouldn't he? Because evolution's a way to explain how we got here without God. But I want you to be honest, in the, in the general sense, when the average young person comes to a church, what are they taught? They're taught Bible stories. Jesus fed the 5,000, Paul's missionary journeys. They're taught Bible stories. Is that Noah's Ark? You got a 50-50 chance. Is that Noah's Ark? Actually, it is. The reason I know that, the giraffes are sticking out the top. If the giraffes aren't sticking out the top, it can't be Noah's Ark. I mean, this is nonsense. In two years, in the summer of 2016, you're going to be able to come down to the Creation Museum. You're going to be able to come visit a full-size Noah's Ark. I promise you there will be no giraffes sticking out the top. This is a cartoon. You know of any passage in Scripture that even remotely describes a vessel such as this. This is not apologetics. This is a cartoon. But see, we go to Johnny in church in our teaching times in our homes, and we say, we're going to lay, lay some Bible knowledge on you. Oh, how about, uh, well, let's talk about Noah's Ark, you know, the overstuffed houseboat with the giraffe sticking out the top. He goes, oh, thanks for the Bible knowledge. Then he goes out into the world the rest of the week. Where's little Johnny get attacked? Everywhere. Schools, friends, neighbors, TV, video games, everywhere. He gets, hey, you couldn't fit all those animals on the ark. Hey, the rock layers are laid down over millions of years. A global flood would be impossible. Noah's flood's a myth. Where'd all that water come from? Hey, little Johnny, your Bible's not true. We're showing him a cartoon boat with a giraffe taken outside. We're not answering the questions of the age. We're not equipping him to have answers. And he goes out the world, attacks him, he comes back next week, he says, oh, um, Miss Sunday school teacher, mom and dad, uh, I got a problem here. About 37 things came up this week. You think maybe you can help me answer? I'm struggling with some of this stuff. And we don't answer his questions. We do what? We teach him another Bible story. It's time about the big fish. Then you know what we tell him? Just trust in Jesus. You know what's going to happen? Little Johnny's going to get older. You know what he's going to realize? Nobody answered any of my questions. I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm gone. Is that happening in our churches? Every single day. You know what the problem is? The church no longer has understanding of the time. We're not equipping our young people to have sound biblical scientific answers. We're no longer teaching sound apologetics. But let's, let's, let's flip this around. Where does Lord Johnny go to learn real things? You know, real biology, real geology, real anthropology. Where does he go to learn real things? School. 87% of ch- uh, children in churches around the country go to public school. If you homeschool, Christian school, or private school and think you're safe, you are so mistaken. You should see some of the curriculum that's out there and some of the curriculum that's coming. But after all, little Johnny can go out in the world and learn real things like this. First there was nothing, then it exploded. I don't care who you are, folks, that's deep. First there was nothing, then it exploded. Now what's going to happen about 8.15 tonight, you're going to go... Wow, I got it. I finally figured it out. First, there was nothing. And they say, I have faith. You see, that's called science. See, that's the world's view of origin. You know what the true view of origins is? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Or little Johnning learned this. Over the last three to five million years, we evolved from ape-like creatures. Now, has anybody never seen an illustration like that? I've seen these things since I was like in junior high, you know, I mean, you know elementary school. I mean, we evolved from ape-like creatures. No, we didn't. But the world says, look at this. This is Lucy. This is our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. 
So they found that and they made that. And if that's true, this is true. And ladies, if that's true, this is true. We are not animals. We are made in the image of the living God. So Tommy, let me get this straight. Are you sort of suggesting we need to teach biology and geology and anthropology and things like that in church? Is that what you're suggesting? Nope, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying it directly. Either we equip our children to have sound, biblical, scientific answers to the questions of the age, or we're going to lose our kids. Let's do something unique. When we start talking about you know, things, we start teaching our kids, when we start dealing with issues, let's start with the Word of God. Say, let's start with Noah's Ark. How about this? 503 feet long, 80 feet wide, 53 feet high. Folks, ain't no giraffe going to stick out the top of that boat. It is not a cartoon boat with, with the animals on the deck. Once we start with the Word of God, we can deal with all sorts of issues like how do you start off with two dogs and get all those different varieties of dogs? I got an answer. Where'd all that water come from? I know where all that water came from. You see those rocks? Those rocks are obviously millions of years old. You know all I'll need to get those rocks? is a whole lot of water and a little bit of time. You know of an event in history associated with a whole lot of water and a little bit of time? How about the flood of Noah's day? I can also explain billions of creatures buried in rock layers, laying down by water all over the earth. I even have answers about dinosaurs. But see, we start with the Word of God because the history in Genesis 1 to 11 gives us the true foundation. It gives us the geologic, cosmologic, anthropologic, biologic origins of the universe. And it equips us to have sound, biblical, scientific answers because Genesis is real history. We relate that real history to the real world, equip with Johnny to have sound answers. And guess what? He's going to go out into the world and he's going to get attacked. But he's going to have sound answers. He's going to have a sound, logical defense of his faith. He's going to be the best possible witness for Jesus Christ in a lost and dying world. You know what he's going to do? He's going to pass that down to the next generation, the next generation, and the next. And this is not an option. 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. As much as we're able to, as fallible human beings, understand we need to have a sound, logical defense of the faith, understand what the world's throwing at us and our young people, equip ourselves and them to have sound, logical, you know, biblical, scientific answers to these, to these questions, to these issues, to deal with these, because we don't want to be like the children of Issachar, men who had understanding of the time. We need to teach ourselves and our children and our children's children sound, biblical apologetics. And that's what our ministry is about, folks equipping people to have sound, biblical, scientific answers to the questions of the age. And with that, we'll stop.